0: Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. I'm Bethany Gilbert, and I'm here with Pastor Bob Thune and Pastor Dusty White of Coram Deo Church, and Pastor Chris Hemmelman of First City Church. On Wednesdays, we sit down to talk about how the gospel of Jesus Christ connects to the questions and issues of everyday life, today's Third Wednesday Theology, and we're talking about the origin, essence, and purpose of man.
1: Hey, before we talk about that subject, I got a little story. Oh. Did you guys know, do you realize the book that we're reading has been in print for like 70 years? More or less. I didn't realize. I think I thought because this version that we're reading is like new. I mean, it just came out in 2019. It's like a re-release. I think I thought the book itself had maybe just recently been translated. Oh, yeah. I absolutely thought that. It is just a reprint of a book that's downstairs in our library that was printed in 1955.
2: Oh, you have the original? Here's what
1: happened. I was doing research for a sermon. I think I was in John Frame's Systematic Theology. He footnoted, hey, this is in Bovink's book called our, our Reasonable Faith. So I was like, I wonder if we have that book. So I pulled up the catalog. I was like, oh, we have that. So I went in there, took it off the shelf. I opened it to the page that Frame had footnoted. I was like, this looks really familiar. <laughs> and then I, then I pulled out The Wonderful Works of God, and I was like, oh, it's literally – the exact same the book. Same they just changed thing. the title. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, was, it was kind of a fun moment. I was like, no. Yeah. Oh. And then I felt like maybe I'm just a dummy because I, <laughs> I think you told us. Oh, yeah, this yeah. book is just like a re-release of a book that's been out for a while. And, and you've had it this all along. The book, long, I didn't even have to buy this because yeah. I've owned it this whole time. Although yeah. the cover
3: of this one's cool. Chris, do you already have that book?
1: No. Our, our Reasonable it, yeah.
3: Faith is what it was called. Yeah. Um,
1: so, hey, by the way, not everybody knows this story. Uh, we have a library
3: downstairs. This is you're two stories deep. Just so you know,
1: <laughs> we have a library. Well, because I think people are like, "What do you mean you just pulled up the?" Cal-? Well, we have a library downstairs. That is one of my one of my favorite feats that <laughs> that I've accomplished <laughs> for the sake of the gospel in Omaha, Nebraska. There, for years and years and years, there was a a Bible college called Grace University. First, it was Grace College of Bible, then Grace University. Many people are proud alumni of that place, like Mike Kresnick, Travis Barrett. Becca Grant, a lot probably listeners of this podcast, many people have graduated from Grace University. It was a, a decent Bible college in Omaha. Most importantly, they had a really good theological library. And so when I used to do sermon research and I was trying to, you know, I wanted to have like access to like 40 commentaries on something, I would just go bury myself in the library and do work. And I did that for, you know, over a decade. Then they closed the doors of Grace University. When was that? 2019, maybe? So sad. It was the year that Travis graduated because yeah. it was, like, he, he, was, was like, the last last. he was like, I might not make it out of here. But he, <laughs> he did. And when we found and by the way, they were also we rented space from them early in Coramdale's history. So we met on their campus for a while. So anyways, when I found out they were closing, I was I thought someone has got to keep that library alive because I
3: It was the best part of the universe. Yeah,
1: it was it was the literally the thing I used frequently and I was like, What are we gonna do if our city does not have this library? So I called up the the director of operations at grace and i said hey what are you gonna do with the library like oh we're gonna i mean we're gonna have to auction it off or sell it or whatever we're taking bids and i said can i make a bid she was like well sure so i called and i said i i i tried to figure out like what's a good bid i don't know how do you <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, it's like on a it's library. like ebay when you're like yeah, i don't ac- buy a library i don't actually know the value of the thing i just offered to bid on So the bid I made was, I said, I want to pay $5 per volume, and I want 5,000 volumes. So it's going to cost $25,000, but I I got to pick whatever 5,000 books I want. And so I I emailed her and said, here's a a bid I'm going to make. It's $25,000, but for just whatever 5,000 volumes I decide. Because I figured, if you're buying like if you buy this book new, it's probably a $30 book, right? So I figured, you know, as long as I pick good books, that's probably a really good deal. If you... If you're buying books blind, it's like yeah. you're probably going to get a bunch of crud that is worth a dollar, you know? So, so,
2: so anyways, we bought a library. We did. And, and you, you went through 5,000 books? Yeah. Wow. Well, it was when Gary Nedeker yeah.
1: was working here who has a PhD in New Testament. So I just took him down there with me and I was like, Gary, let's just, let's get all the best books. Let's wow. get the commentaries and the biblical theology and the, you know, good nice. counseling books and
3: he anything. Had, he had been there for decades, so yeah. he knew right where he they were. That.
1: He knew his way around that place. So anyway... Thanks to the providence of God, we have a wonderful theological library downstairs.
3: It is nice. So
2: all those years, our reasonable faith was sitting was in sitting Grace in- University's library. It was yes, yeah. wonderful treasure.
3: Yeah, it was probably not read
1: much. By the way, I don't. I don't get the sense it looked. It looked like it hadn't gotten. <laughs> oh man! When I pulled it off the shelf, listeners,
2: if any of you are Grace University grads and you, and you actually read oh wait or you actually read this in the library let us know reach out we'll send you a snack
3: whoa there yes you go we'll hey, will. We will send you we'll send you hot cakes from seattle or whatever yeah. our favorite snack by hungry. the way
1: hey snack free day today yeah
3: yeah it's lent it's lent
0: yeah we're giving <laughs> us <Yes>. <laughs> not quite not we true got a f- it's not
3: quite lent that is, is not
1: true well, no,
2: it I'll, is lent i guess it is lent yes it is sorry my church calendar's off
3: no snacks
1: sorry uh, it does change every year. <laughs> yes. Lord, it's not like Christmas where it's always on yeah. December 25. Um, let's, so this is a long. This is the longest chapter we've thus far encountered in Bavink. Therefore, I'm not going to try to summarize the chapter. Its subject is basically what does it mean to be human. So he talks about what it means to be made in the image of God. He talks about the, the calling that God gave to Adam and Eve to fill the earth and subdue it. Uh, it, it sort of covers the idea of, well, like the title says, the origin, the essence, and the purpose of man. So what does it mean to be human? What are we put here to do? How has God designed us and intended us? I think the most interesting thing, we were just joking before we turned on the microphones, that he uses the word protoplasm and platypus in this chapter. I wonder what the
2: Dutch word for platypus is. I, I was just
1: thinking, like, the <laughs> translation work here is impressive because, you know, how, do you, how did you know you're going to need the word platypus yeah. to, I mean, to translate this? That's Um, deep. But what I found really interesting is there's a few places where, I mean, Bavik just, he's a very reflective writer. And so there's places where he goes, Oh, since we're talking about this, let me go a little deeper into that subject and frame it out a little bit. And I really liked, um, a few sections. There's a few places that stood out to me that I just like, Oh, that's a good thought. I want to talk about that. I'm sure there are some for you guys as well. Um, so let's just do that. Let's just tackle, let's just talk about pieces that we found interesting. Um, I want to start with what I like. I think Bavink corrects some faulty thinking that's present in many Christians when it comes to evolution and creation. Um, because the, the simplistic thinking that is present in many Christian conversations about that is, oh, now we're talking about science. And Bavink always wants to remind you, anytime you talk about evolution and creation, you are talking about philosophy not science, and he does a really thorough job of just sort of like defining the limits of, hey, here's the category of science, here's the category of philosophy, and here's how you need to understand when you're crossing that boundary. So let me read you a little section from page 172 where he takes evolution to task in the right way, not by saying, the science doesn't say that, but by saying, hey, philosophically, let's just talk about what you're saying. So here's the section. He writes, If a person repudiates the scriptural account of the origin of the human race, it becomes necessary to give some other account of it. Man exists, and no one can escape asking the question of where he came from. If he does not owe his origin to the creative omnipotence of God, he owes it to something else. And then no solution remains except to say that man gradually developed himself out of the antecedent lower beings and worked himself up to his present high position in the order of being. Evolution is therefore the magic word which in our times must somehow solve all problems about the origin and essence of creatures. The evolutionist, however, proceeds from the wholly arbitrary and impossible assumption that matter and energy and motion existed eternally. To this, he adds that before our solar system came into being, the world consisted simply of a chaotic gaseous mass. This was the starting point of evolution which gradually resulted in our present world and all of its creatures. It is by evolution that the solar system and the earth came into existence. By evolution, the layers of the earth and minerals came into being. By evolution, the animate came into being out of the inanimate. By evolution, plants and animals and men came to be. And inside the pale of the human, it was again by evolution that sexual differentiation, marriage, family, society, state, language, religion, morality, law, science, art, and all the other values of civilization came into existence. If only... One may proceed from this one assumption that matter and energy and motion existed eternally. Then it is supposed one no longer needs to postulate a God. Then the world is self-explanatory. Science, it is believed, constitutes God entirely unnecessary. What Boving then goes on to point out a few pages later is to say, what this fails to do is to differentiate between facts and the philosophical interpretation of those facts. So he says, hey, the facts of that there is variation among species and that animals, you know, just dis, distribute, dis, uh, display change over time or that we can find fossils in the all the facts are the facts. They are what they are. What evolution does is, a, is smuggling in an, an interpretation of those facts to the facts. And he says, hey, we have to understand that the facts are facts of science. When we ask what does that mean about how we got here, now we're in the realm of philosophy. And he really always wants to push that, hey, when we get into that category, the realm of philosophy, now let's not, let's not, people, let's not let people smuggle in the idea that we're just talking about the facts anymore. Because now we're talking about theory, now we're talking about why and how, now we're talking about where did man ultimately come from. And when bavink writes and asks questions about the origin of man, he always wants to say, I'm, I'm asking the question, where did, how did we become human? What is the origin of humanity? And evolution does not have an answer to that question. It has hypotheses about, well, if you just have enough time and enough iterations of various changes, we could hypothesize that that's how we got to where we are. But Boving says that fails to answer the question decisively. It's a it's a philosophical category that we're in, not a scientific one. I think that's important for people to understand.
2: Yeah, I appreciate that Boving's essential argument in this section holds up, even though the theory of evolution has morphed and changed and the the particulars of what it was when he was arguing uh, have changed in some ways. The explanation, the basic philosophical assumptions haven't. And so his argument holds up at the bottom of page 177. He writes, all the efforts that have been put forth to explain consciousness, freedom of the will, reason, conscience, language, religion, morality, and all such manifestations as being solely the product of evolution have not been crowned with success. Still the same. Yes. Even, even after all these years, that argument holds up.
1: Yes. And he says on the next page, on 178, of all the elements on which such theories are built, nothing remains in the end but a philosophical worldview which wants to explain all things and all manifestations in terms of the things and manifestations themselves leaving God out of the account. The choice is between evolutionary descent or miracle. Since miracle is impossible, we are compelled to take the first position there. He's quoting what people often say. And such an admission demonstrates that the theory of the descent of man from lower animal forms does not rest on careful scientific investigation, but is rather the postulate of a materialistic or pantheistic philosophy. And again, I I think I like that Bob always trying to push us back and say, hey, we're having a philosophical conversation here. Let's not make this about science. Let's not make it about the fossil record. None, none, Those are facts, and we all agree on what those facts are. When we ask how did we get here and who are we, we're always talking about philosophy. All right, let's talk about animals. Before we turn the um, microphones on, we were talking about whether your dog has a soul because Chris and Bethany were convinced that their dogs – have reason and intelligence and i was telling them no your dog is just a creature of instinct
0: i mean i still think mine does but
1: we're gonna let (laughs) obviously obviously bob (laughs) is the person who should settle this question for us yes so here's uh here's the i think this is the the statement that you're going to disagree with chris so that's good animals do not have reason cannot separate the image from the particular individual and concrete thing they cannot raise them into concepts cannot relate the concepts and so form judgments, cannot make inferences from the judgments nor arrive at decisions, and cannot carry out decisions by an act of the will. Animals have sensations, images, and combinations of images. They have instincts, desires, and passions, but they lack the higher forms of desire and knowledge which are peculiar to man. They have no reason and they have no will. All this comes to expression in the fact that animals do not have language, religion, morality, and the sense of beauty. They have no ideas of God, of the invisible things, of the true, the good, and the beautiful. So there you go. He says, Your
2: dog does not have reason. Well, as you pointed out, if we define reason by uh, capable of abstract thought, then I agree. But is that the only kind of reasoning? Yes, according to him, it is. Okay, because well, I think he, he I, gets to set the terms, well, then I'm, I'm, fair not, enough.
1: I'm not saying we should let him set the terms. I'm just saying when he says that that all of this comes to expression the fact that animals don't have language, religion, a yeah, sense which of I a agree. I agree with what, what he's saying is what's unique about human beings as made in the image of God is that they have the we have the capacity to think about things that I mean here's the example I was thinking of when I, when I got ready for this podcast. Think about a unicorn. You can have a concept of a unicorn because even though it's entirely mythical and you've never seen one, your mind can take what you know of a horse put wings on it, put a horn on its on its uh, face and go, okay, I, could, I can conceive that. Or a dragon, for instance. Like you, mm-hmm. We can take these mythical creatures and we can imagine what they would look like in our minds. And that's the thing your dog can't do. And not only your dog, but no other animal that does not have yeah. human intelligence can abstract in that way and think of something that does not actually exist in reality, but that requires us to, to universalize from what we do know.
2: Yeah, and his basic point I completely agree with in, in the sense of... Um, the difference between man and animals and our reasoning and our will and our capacity for abstract thought and morality and, and religion. So don't disagree there. But, man, there are times where I'm interacting with my dog and I'm like, this dog, there's more going on there. There's intelligence in those eyes. Yeah, yeah. They're,
3: they're smarter. Yeah.
0: When, you, yeah, when you're just looking in their eyes and you're like that, there's somebody's looking back. <laughs> <Yeah>.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, and
1: I'm just saying Ruby can't think of a unicorn. So that there you go. True. Your dog can't fair, think of a you. Fair dog. enough. But he. What's interesting is Bobinck uses the language of soul to describe that. So he says the word soul means two things in the Bible. It means just the the principle of life. The idea that there is an inanimate life in this being. And I think what you just said, Bethany, when you when you say like, there's I look into this animal's eyes and something's <laughs> looking back at me. That's that's that sense yeah. is that there is mm-hmm. a there's a there's being mm-hmm. in this animal. And then he says, the human soul, what makes it unique and distinct from the animal soul, is that it is spiritual, yeah. meaning it's made for communion with God. And so I, I hadn't seen a whole lot of theologians do that. I don't know, Chris, you might know more here than me as far as sort of what the theological tradition is, but he's obviously talking about, you know, body, soul, and spirit as three distinct things, and and uh, it was interesting how he sort of works that out.
2: Yeah, but are they? I don't know. That's what, I, mean, yeah, I know yeah, this yeah, is yeah, a debate. Because yeah. so. he even, I mean, this is... A little bit past what he really gets into, but the, the how he talks about the soul and the spirit almost kind of sets them up distinct. But then he he the movement he makes is that the soul is the kind of the spiritual part of you connected to your yeah. body. Hey, this is fascinating because now we get to talk about angels. Yeah, because oh, <laughs> this, this is where he, which <laughs> is different than yeah, which is different than angels are not referred to as having souls; they're right. spirits. Exactly. Yeah, so, so, so soul what- and body. Yeah. So yeah, this yeah. is where
1: Bobbing did something for me. I was like, I've never seen somebody do that, and that makes actual sense. Let me read it to you. He says, let's talk about the difference between angels and human beings. Um, angels do not have a soul and body, but are pure spirits. He quotes Hebrews 1.14 uh, there. And so what he says is, angels are pure spirits. You and I have a soul and a body. He says, soul and spirit differ from each other in this respect, the soul is by nature spiritual, immaterial, invisible, and in man is a spiritually independent entity which is oriented to a body, suits a body, and without a body is incomplete and imperfect. So what's interesting is he says, human beings have souls because the soul is like the immaterial part that's wedded to your body. Mm -hmm. Um, Angels don't have bodies or souls. They are purely spirits. Um, And what makes our, our souls higher than the animal souls is that our souls, the the immaterial part of us is fashioned in a way that we can commune with God in a sense that we are a spiritual being in a way that your dog isn't. Yeah. Yeah. Which is pretty fascinating to think about. I'd never heard anybody describe the difference between angels and human beings in that
2: way. I agree. I haven't either. And, and, but it also some reading this again, because that discussion and Christians disagree on this of whether we're three parts or two parts, but the way he connects soul and spirit as, I, I think he ultimately, and I think in his reform dogmatics, ultimately connects these two as the same thing. But the distinction and why in scripture, it seems as if sometimes there's three things and the way scripture talks about that is because the soul is the spiritual part of us, but because it's different than the angel, an angel in the sense of spirit there's a, a distinction that soul captures about that spiritual side of us. So I think there's the interplay of that dynamic that scripture doesn't, you know, in sort of like an encyclopedic way, determine um, differentiate those things, but speaks of them kind of interchangeably in some ways. So I, I think this is a brilliant way of kind of trying to tease out that difference. Um, and I think it makes a compelling argument that we're body and soul.
3: Okay, Dusty. Um, my mind is just kind of blown over here. <laughs> well, listen, the, the next screen. thing
1: he says, it's going to be I think this maps onto the work that we often do with story. Listen to this. The second distinction between men and angels is this because angels are pure spirits, they stand in a relatively loose relationship with reference to each other. They do not constitute one race, they are not blood relatives, they did not beget each other. It is possible to speak of a mankind but not of an angel kind. When Christ assumed human nature, he was immediately related to all men, related by blood, and he was their brother according to the flesh. But the angels lived next to each other, each one accountable for himself and not for the others, so that a portion of them could fall, and a portion remained faithful to God. It is fascinating to think about the fact that human beings are
2: related to each other by blood, yeah, and angels are not. Mm-hmm. But is it is it? I think the one little squabble I had with that statement is angel kind. Isn't isn't it possible to still say there's an angel kind? like? Well, because is there? I don't know. No su- one's ever used that word until <laughs> the, right now. The matter or the the substance of what angels are—they're not
1: material, Chris.
2: They're well, no the matter. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> this spiritual body that they are. To use First Corinthians fifteen, um, is that? distinct to the beings known as angels, unique to the beings known as angels. And so in that way, you can maybe say, I agree with, I mean, all those other distinctions he's making, but is it still fair to say, you could say angel kind? No, you can't.
1: Because he's saying what makes humans one is that we are one race, one race connected to each other. And he's saying that each angel is, is created Separate. individually and is not a, we can't speak of them as a whole. But aren't the, there's, but, a, there's a multitude of the heavenly host
2: praising God and but saying even if that's the case, on earth. Even if that's the case, them. aren't angels still what makes an angel an angel? The essence of an angel, they all share. Mm. I don't know, but I, listen, I, share I, what? hang on. I think like, I'm disagreeing with what? Bob Inc on this. Share my what? homeboy. Well, okay, you think of essence. we're we're all related. Yeah. I mean, related in the sense of there's an essence of human yeah, yeah. humanity. I would say there's also an essence of angel, Yes, but even I mean, if they're not necessarily interconnected the same on. way
1: humans are. But hang on. You're right philosophically, but isn't the point that Bobbing is making that we are also not just related in terms of sharing an essence, but we also we trace our ancestry to one couple?
2: Yeah, on that point, on that point, I completely agree. I'm well, gonna, I think that's yeah, what yeah. he's
1: getting at is that, that, that the angels do not come from a lineal descent. As human beings do, and so there's not a blood relationship. Here's what he he says on page 186. Because the angels are spirits and not related to the earth, because they are not related by blood and do not know such distinctions as father and mother, parents and children, brothers and sisters, therefore there is a whole world of relationships and connections, ideas and emotions, desires and duties, of which angels know nothing. The the riches and depth of the emotional life of man— is far superior to the angel, which is
3: fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Which, yeah. well, that makes sense because... it well, makes sense to you. I literally <laughs> never thought about it till right now. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't make sense, but this is why the scriptures say that we're higher than the angels.
1: Yeah. Angels long to look into the manifold wisdom of God displayed in redemption.
2: I still think you can say angel kind. <laughs> <laughs> How come you've never said that in a sermon then? I've yeah. never heard you talk about I don't think angelkind. I've ever talked about an- yeah, angel kind. Friends,
1: I'd like to talk this morning about angel kind. Also, yeah.
3: angel kind is one word. Angel kind. Just, you know. Angel kind. I wonder if that's in Dutch too. I do think. Angel kind. I hear what you're saying. That sounds I more hear German. what Bob's saying because he's sandwiching that whole sentence in between ranking angels and then still talking about the flesh brother and sister relationships that humankind have. Yeah. So I think that is what he's getting at. Only a few pages deep into this chapter, he says something about gifts, which is just a, I just, it was a worshipful moment. He said, God gave man the things he himself could not supply. The best things come to us as gifts. They fall into our laps without labor and without price. We do not earn them nor achieve them. We get them from nothing. The richest and most precious gift, which can be given to man on earth is woman. And this gift he gets in a deep sleep when he is unconscious." unconscious and without any effort of will or fatigue of the hand. And God. I was like, man, that is like, just the way he writes mm-hmm. makes me, I know all that. <laughs> but like the way he writes that down for you is a worshipful moment.
1: Well, and he's writing, remember this is early 1900s. He's outside of all of our current debates about egalitarianism and complementarianism. What does it mean to be man and woman? And what is the relationship between the genders? Mm -hmm. But there's a beauty in how he describes and frames the differentiation between the sexes in humanity. And at the end of that page that you're reading, Dusty, he talks about um, how Eve is related to Adam. He says she's related to him and yet is different from him. She belongs to the same kind and yet in that kind she occupies her own unique position She is dependent, and yet she is free. She is after Adam and out of Adam, but owes her existence to God alone. She is his helper, not as mistress and much less as slave, but as an individual, independent, and free being, who received her existence not from the man, but from God, who is responsible to God, and who was added to man as a free and unearned gift. I just think that the clarity and carefulness of the theological reflection there really helps us <laughs> avoid a bunch of ditches that the current mm-hmm. conversation has gotten into about you know the, the ways that complementarianism twists that and then the ways that in response egalitarianism tries to untwist it just feels like no one seems to to be able to talk about the beauty of what it means to be differentiated and yet responsible to God and independent and free and distinct and unique, it's, it's just a really beautiful way of framing um, what it means to sort of be man and woman. So I agree that was the way that Bavink talks about this is, wor- is kind of worshipful. You know, it made me go like, oh, he's not just trying to frame out what Genesis says about God making us male and female in his image. He's, he's, he's seeing how that leads us to worship and, and gratitude.
2: Yeah, and kind of related to that earlier, a page earlier, um, when he just talks about that we're created for a community and the importance of that, Uh, he writes, it is not good for the man that he should be alone. He is not so constituted. He was not created that way. His nature inclines to the social. He wants company. He must be able to express himself, reveal himself, and give himself. He must be able to pour out his heart, to give form to his feelings. He must share his awareness with a being who can understand him and can feel and live along with him. Solitude is poverty, forsakenness, gradual pining, and wasting away. How lonesome it is to be alone. I mean, he's just like... <laughs>
3: How <laughs> lonesome it is to be alone yeah. is a great... That's a great sentence. Yeah. He's also... Yeah, I mean, he's also saying that you need to give form to your feelings. So if you're just a theological mm. head on a stick, mm. Bob Inc. would pick up the phone oh, with you.
2: Something that uh, when I was reading that, you, like Bobbing's own story... Um, part of his story is a long period of life of unrequited love. Like there was this gal that he really pined for, and this sounds like it make a good documentary. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, proposed to on multiple occasions, and and it didn't happen. It's yeah, like he did. They actually did not get the, the story. Did not they? And they lived happily ever after. It. They actually did not get together. She yeah. actually never married. Um, but it, when you read his biography and just kind of that that period of life. Um, you read this, and you 're like he 's he 's feeling
0: that man like he 's
2: saying that and yeah. and' cause that he 's experienced it
0: i 'm so glad wow. that you know this I know
1: I would have not known the That's story great. behind the story yeah. behind the music with man.
0: Chris
3: element that just changes everything for me poor guy yeah it was
2: and it was it was like one of those crazy things like why i mean he was like this rising theologian he 's a godly guy came from a godly i mean it's like every mom and dad would want their daughter to marry a guy like this. And, and so it's a very fascinating story. Why interesting her parents were not cool with it. Oh,
1: so there's more to, there's even yeah, mom her parents. It was totally her parents. Oh wow. Yeah, totally her parents. This is definitely a movie in the making. Bethany is having ideas
3: right Somebody now about the screenplay. This, story, this is all from his biography or one yeah. of the few that you've read. <laughs> the authorized, the critical biography,
2: the, uh, the Eglinton. Yeah. yeah. The Eglinton, well,
1: yeah. Um, a couple other things I want to draw out from this chapter. For those of you who go to work and wonder, how does my work glorify God? Listen to Herman. Culture, in the broadest sense, is the purpose for which God created man after his image. The dominion of the earth includes not only the ancient callings of men, such as hunting and fishing, agriculture and stock raising, but also trade and commerce, finance and credit, the exploitation of mines and mountains, and science and art. Such culture does not have its end in man, but in man who is the image of God and who stamps the imprint of his spirit upon all that he does, it returns to God who is the first and the last. So I've just never read a theologian that says, hey, if you work in a mine, guess what? You're glorifying God. Mm. And all my minor friends back in Nevada that I visited earlier this year are like, cool, man, that's, I need somebody to tell me that because it's dark down there and dangerous. You know, it's, it's, it's wonderful to think about. All of that being part of the reason for which God created us. All these vocations. On page 201, Bavink writes this, The state of the first man should not be exaggeratedly glorified, as is so often done in Christian doctrine and preaching. No matter how high God placed man above the animals, man had not yet achieved his highest possible level. He did not yet possess eternal life, which cannot be corrupted and cannot die but received instead a preliminary immortality whose existence and duration depended upon the fulfillment of a condition. He was immediately created as image of God, but he could still lose this image and all its glory. So what Bavik is saying is, hey, new heavens and new earth is better than the Garden of Eden. Stop pretending like Eden is like the pinnacle yeah, of existence. Exactly. yes. It's not.
2: <laughs> Christ did not redeem you to, take, to restore Eden, to bring yeah. us back to Eden. Mm-hmm. Something greater. Wow. The redemptive ark, yes. But I, just, I, I like when he says, as
1: is so often done in Christian doctrine. and pre- Okay, yeah. I feel rebuked. I've probably done that.
3: Yeah, probably I talked about how about this. Eden is, is the vision and the goal. It's not. I'm kind of stuck on preliminary immortality. Yeah.
2: I mean, within the Reformed tradition, it's always been understood that Eden was, a, it was like a probationary period in some ways that yeah. Adam was, if he would have been faithful, he would have been ushered into eternal life but he was not. It hmm. goes all the way back to Augustine.
3: He was not. <laughs> he, that he, is for sure. That's why we need a second Adam. <laughs> that's why
2: we need the second Adam, <laughs> who was, praise God, who ushers us into eternal life.
1: There are, There is so much in this chapter that we have not even touched on. We could probably spend three hours talking about just Bovink's chapter on the image of God. So I want to encourage you. We have barely scratched the surface, and if this is a topic of interest for you, I want to point you to Bavink because I think what he does here is richer and deeper and more beautiful than most books I've read. So every Christian knows the image of God is an important topic and, and something we should understand. I think what Bavink does to build this out is, is beautiful and helpful. And it's a long chapter. It took me a while to read this. I was like, man, I got to set aside some time here and slow down because there's a lot to think about. So any closing final thoughts?
2: Well, I just think in, uh, our culture where we are today and how the, what it means to be human, the image of God is just, it's becoming increasingly under attack. A a theologian like Bobink breathes not only just the truth, but the beauty. And and I think here is a a rich resource to fortify you and strengthen you when the chaos around the culture. So I agree, Bob, Bavink brings not only the truth and, and really a beautiful unpacking of scripture, but that beauty of what it means to be human. Next
1: time you imagine a unicorn, Give God glory that you have the capacity to imagine that because it's an evidence that you're made in the image of God.
0: The goal of this podcast is to equip our own church for discipleship and mission. So if you're a Christian or a church leader in another context, we thank you for listening in, and we pray that this conversation might be helpful to you as you minister in your context. We love to hear from listeners. So if you have thoughts, questions, or future podcast topics, send an email to podcast at cdomaha.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time for another episode of the Wednesday Conversation.
2: I'm going to show my dog a picture, <laughs> and she <laughs> will she will know that this is a unicorn. <laughs> no. You can you can completely <laughs> just strike that for the record. <laughs>
3: That's wild.